Hello, and welcome to another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. My name is David Naff. I'm the Assistant Director of Merck and the host of this podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by members of our research and study team from our newest Merck study focused on equitable access and support for advanced coursework. Uh, we will provide some definitions, discuss key findings from the literature about racial and socioeconomic disparities in advanced course taking, share some details about our approach to this study, and reflect on the importance of this topic through the lens of research, policy, and practice. Uh, we have Tamika Ferguson, who is the Interim Assistant Dean for Student Affairs and Inclusive Excellence. She's also an Assistant Professor of Educational Leadership in the VC School of Education and one of the principal investigators on this study. Uh, George Huan is an affiliate faculty in counseling and special education in the VC School of Education and an assistant principal at Woodson High School in Fairfax County Public Schools, and he's one of our research team members. We have Amy Jefferson, who is an MBCT Early Childhood University Supervisor and a PhD student in Curriculum, Culture, and Change in the VC School of Education, and she's a research team member. Allison Koenka is an assistant professor of educational psychology in the Department of Foundations of Education at VCU, and she's one of our principal investigators on this study. John Marshall is the principal of Douglas Freeman High School in Henrico County Public Schools, and he's a member of our study team. And Morgan Saxby is a nationally board certified fifth grade teacher at Robius Elementary School in Chesterfield County Public Schools and a member of our study team. Uh, folks, this is just a cross-section of research and study team for this project that includes 50 people. Um, this is such a dynamic team, and I uh, honestly, sincerely love working with all of these people. So um, everyone who's on this podcast, thank you all so much for being here today. So for our discussion today, I'm gonna to provide a little bit of background on our study and how this got started, as well as some key definitions around what we mean when we're talking about advanced coursework, because that can mean a lot of different things. So all of our studies are identified by our policy and planning council that's made up of superintendents and other school division leaders from throughout the Merck region. So these are topics that are identified that are of immediate and enduring importance to local schools and school divisions. This topic was voted on in December of 2019 by our council after a year of discussion. Um, and it was voted on unanimously. Uh, racial and socioeconomic disparities in advanced course taking is not only an issue in the Richmond region, it's an issue across the Commonwealth, and it's a pretty clear um, and prevalent civil rights issue across the country. So I was very excited to have an opportunity to dig into this topic, and we've assembled a really great team to look into it. There's four components to this study that's across two different phases. Um, we're going to go into detail about what each of those components are during this episode. Uh, but just to give you kind of an overview, the four components of our study, we have a secondary data analysis um, that we're going to be talking about here in just a moment where we're looking at student course taking patterns across our region. And we're doing a policy analysis where we're looking at the federal, state, and division level policies that guide the provision of advanced coursework. All of that is phase one, which is kind of the explorational phase of our study. We're already underway with that process. And then phase two of our study is when we're collecting primary data from students and educators in our schools. Um, it starts with a secondary student survey that's gonna go out to all middle and high school students throughout the Merck region. So that's tens of thousands of students who could take this survey. Um, and we're doing a multiple case study in six schools in our region. So two elementary, two middle and two high schools uh, to understand about school level practices related to enrolling students in courses and the provision of advanced coursework at different levels throughout K-12. And when I'm talking about advanced coursework, speaking of throughout K-12, 
at the elementary level, we're primarily looking at gifted programs, although there's, and I'm sure Morgan will get into this a little bit during our discussion today, there's different ways that we provide advanced courses to elementary school students, but the literature really focuses on gifted programs. We have a literature review that Amy is going to be talking through a little bit. At the middle school level, we're focusing pretty heavily on Algebra 1 in middle school, but there are also high school level courses in middle school, um, as well as other advanced course offerings. And then at high school, we're looking at advanced placement, um, which is AP courses, international baccalaureate, which is IB courses, dual enrollment, and honors courses. So there's a lot more variety in the types of um, advanced courses that are offered at the high school level. Research really focuses primarily on AP courses from what we found. So that'll be coming up in our conversation today. So just to kind of give us a, a, a common framework for what we're working from here, those are the definitions that we tend to be thinking of when we're talking about advanced coursework. Um, George, why don't you get us started? So in general, what do we know about the representation of low-income and racial and ethnic minority students in advanced courses across K-12? Thank you, David. I think one of the things that we do definitely know, or a couple of things that we definitely know, is that they're not represented equally in these classes. Um, you know, I think when you think about uh, the process at the elementary level um, and the teacher recommendations uh, through that process, it, it is very political. Um, if your parents are um, wealthy or if they can navigate the school system, that puts you at an advantage, right? Um, I think about myself as an immigrant and coming to this country, my mom didn't have that knowledge or that background. So um, there was no advocacy on her behalf. So I think of those students um, when we think about uh, the makeup of you know, some of our advanced coursework. And how does this resonate with your work as an assistant principal? You know, when I think of it from a high school standpoint, again, the the, the students are not there, the black and brown students are not there. And if they are there, um, more than likely, they, they will not have someone in their class that looks like them and their teacher probably doesn't look like them. Mm -hmm. And so when they are there, they're there with this burden as well. That burden of like, you know, does the teacher, you know, believe that I should be here? So now I'm trying to prove myself that I, I belong here, right? Um, they can't make mistakes because if they make mistakes, the teacher probably will hold them at a different account, right? And so if they score higher uh, on some of these tests, then the teacher may think that that's suspicious. So it's just a lot of those factors that go into the mindset of our students when they are in these classes. Hmm. And that's pretty consistent with what we find in the research too, with things like um, belonging, which is one of many constructs that are explored in ed psych. Um, Allison, this is your background. How can educational psychology help us gain some new insights into these pretty longstanding disparities? Thanks for that question, David. And I'll actually start to answer this question in a way that may um, initially sound a little surprising, which is that I would argue that historically, educational psychology in general as a field, which, with some notable exceptions, has actually fallen a little bit short or a lot short of its potential to contribute meaningful insights into these longstanding disparities. Um, but I will say that I'm really encouraged and really excited by um, a shift that I think is happening right now and recently in our field towards more interdisciplinary work that draws from other literatures, but is still largely grounded within educational psychology. So with that being said, um, what I would say is that 
educational psychology, as the term psychology implies, really centers the psychological experiences of students, along with the different contextual factors that give rise to those psychological experiences, along with the behavioral outcomes that students experience. And what a lot of research grounded within educational psychology and other disciplines shows is that all of these components play a really critical role in helping to un not only understand, but also to attenuate these kinds of disparities. And I think that this really centering not only the psychological experiences of students, but also what gives rise to those psychological experience, what con context or contextual variables gives rise to those psychological experience. I think that this is really how educational psychology has the potential to provide really important insight, especially as our field is um, increasingly embracing interdisciplinary work and adopting an asset-based approach to exploring these questions. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's consistent with what we're trying to do with this study. We're trying to be as interdisciplinary as possible. Um, and we'll definitely be digging a lot more into EdPsych whenever we're talking about our survey a little bit later in this episode. Um, and Amy, George already gave us some background about what advanced coursework looks at the high school level. We've been digging into so much literature already <laughs> for this study. We've got lots of spreadsheets filled with lots of studies that we've been reviewing. And we already have a literature review out uh, related to equity and gifted and talented programs that you were a second author on. So specifically, what does the literature tell us about student representation in gifted education? Well, and I think it's really important to look at the data as well, because based on the 2015-2016 data from the Office of Civil Rights, Black students are underrepresented in gifted programs in 48 out of 50 of the states, while Latinx students are underrepresented in 49 out of the 50 states. So that really speaks to what's going on in the schools. Virginia ranked 22nd nationally for black student enrollment in terms of proportional representation in gifted programs and 15th nationally for Latinx student enrollment. Um, additionally, data showing us that as the school poverty level increases, the percentage of students participating in gifted programming drops, suggesting that even though there might be higher than average availability of gifted programs in Virginia, the participation of those low income students in these programs is marginal. Um, and then when we consider the pipeline of gifted education leading into higher coursework in high school and beyond, that's really concerning. Some recommendations that we found in the literature to address some of these inequities in gifted representation um, include universal screening so that all students are considered for gifted programs, creating local norms to compare students to peers within their own school locally instead of same age peers nationally, which can make a big difference. Using multiple types of assessments, such as performance-based, project-based. So you're creating more of a holistic picture of student ability. Also using alternative forms of assessment to reduce some barriers that may exist regarding language um, created by the possible also cultural bias that might exist in standardized testing. Nonverbal assessments might also be used. Using a multifaceted committee to observe all students for signs of potential giftedness 
And that's a big push that we found in the literature is exposing all students to enrichment opportunities by moving more towards a talent development approach to giftedness, as opposed to you have to qualify to receive services. So that's just the idea of expanding opportunities for all students beyond a traditional pullout program. And then importantly, diversifying the teacher workforce. So these students are seeing themselves not only represented in the programs, but represented in the educators that are teaching them and working with them. Right. And all of the, the different assessment strategies that you just mentioned, a lot of those are already referenced in the guidance that the Virginia Department of Education provides for regulating the, the education for gifted learners of trying to use multiple criteria for assessing somebody for gifted programs through a committee review just to make sure that we have multiple stakeholder voices at the table whenever we're doing that. But we still see these disparities. A couple of things from that lit review that you worked on, Amy, that I thought were really interesting. One is that um, there was a study that we referenced where they talked about what the criteria was for um, assessing students for giftedness. And even though you just listed all of these different ways that you can assess students for giftedness in this national survey, overwhelmingly, it was true that schools and districts would tend to use a singular assessment. So like an IQ test or some other sort of cognitive assessment for determining giftedness, which really is consistent with the idea of like gifted identification, right? So like you're trying to really figure out in a discrete way, who are your gifted students? Like it's this sort of discrete trait. But one thing that was a big recommendation from that, from the lit review that we found was around the idea of moving away from gifted identification and towards talent development. So it's a bit of a mindset shift. Can you talk a little bit about what the so difference is? So that you're not looking giftedness as a fixed trait. You're looking at it as something that all students might actually possess and be able to develop if given the opportunity. That also kind of connects to the idea of the opportunity gap. Mm -hmm. um, and also an important piece of that is providing professional development for the teachers so that they know how to not only nurture students from all types of backgrounds, but also how to identify giftedness in those students, like students that might have special needs or students that are um, English language learners and lots of different types of students. So just kind of broadening how we're identifying students and nurturing them so that they have more of an opportunity. Right. And Amy found lots of examples of PD programs that that have empirical evidence of helping to diversify gifted programs. So definitely check out the reports available on our website right now. Um, and just curious about what this looks like at the actual elementary school level. Uh, Morgan, you are a real life fifth grade teacher on this call right now. What does advanced coursework look like in elementary school? And then how does some of the recommendations that Amy just mentioned, how do those resonate with your work as an elementary school teacher? So I was really happy that you guys invited some elementary school folks to this question about like advanced coursework. Cause I feel like you normally, you say advanced coursework, you're thinking AP, you're thinking IB, which is obviously a very important thing. But if you're talking about disparities in AP coursework, it, it's gonna, it has to start down with us at the elementary level. Cause that's where so much of the identification starts. Um, and it was interesting hearing Amy talk about identification versus talent development. Um, because I, I do think a big part of what advanced coursework and gifted, gifted education in elementary looks like is identifying kids as gifted. And then once you have that identification, you keep it forever and, and, and you, and, and at certain pathways open up. And so, um, 
at, at the elementary level, uh, I would say that the, the, the most common advanced coursework probably would be an accelerated mathematics program for which you don't have to have that gift of identification. You either have to have, at least in Chesterfield, typically a, a combination of some sort of test score and a teacher recommendation. And then that, you know, that path starts in fourth grade in, in fourth grade. And it, it, I guess the, the default pathway now gets you to algebra one in eighth grade, but it's supposed to get you to an honors uh, algebra one. And then if you are identified as gifted, you go into what they call a double accelerated mathematics, which you know, puts you into the, either geometry or algebra two in eighth grade. And so, you know, you end up with second year calculus um, and you would need the gifted identification for that. We do have in Chesterfield, and, you know, we're a large district. So I think some of the smaller districts probably don't, I'm not sure if they all have the bandwidth for this, but for students who are identified as gifted, there's school-based gifted, which is students receive gifted differentiation from the teacher, essentially their homeroom teacher. And then there's also um, a center-based gifted. So there's there are certain centers within elementary schools where uh, you know, students might actually leave their home elementary school uh, and, and go attend school there. So that's some of the ways that it looks like in, in elementary level. Um, and it, it, you know, in terms of some of the recommendations that Amy mentioned, uh, so universal screening, I think, is one of the most important things because you know, if you if if you don't put kids up to be you know for gifted testing, they can't possibly be identified as gifted uh, as gifted students. And right. so, you know, George had mentioned you know that that some families who know the system can make sure that their kids get that opportunity. And whereas families that don't know the system, you know, either the individual teacher has to be the advocate for them, which I think individual teachers should absolutely be the advocate for all of their students, especially if their families, you know, are immigrant families that don't know how the system works or low income families or families that didn't have a great, you know, a a great experience with school. And so that don't know how the, the system works. And, uh, I think you should be the advocate for that, but I do think universal screening will help and the nonverbal th- uh, screening. So in Chesterfield in the last few years, uh, we have adopted those things. We've been doing universal screens. We've been doing the NAT, which is a nonverbal test. And, and um, I think that's a big step in the right direction. I do still think, and, and I've even had experience, my own experiences where I've, I've recommended a student for gifted testing and uh, you know, they've, they've either qualified or they've qualified as a, as a monitor status. And so like it does, it is important for us teach for we teachers to still do this kind of thing where we're, we're still looking out for kids, but universal screens are a very important step. Yeah. And you brought up a couple of things I think are really important, Morgan, because equity and gifted education isn't just in the identification process, but also in how you provide Uh, accelerated learning opportunities to gifted students. And you mentioned a couple of different models. Uh, One is a pullout model where students are in um, different centers. That's pretty common nationally. Um, It's probably most common from what we found in the literature review that pullout classes are typically the way that students who are identified as gifted receive instruction, which is the argument in the literature is that that can be inherently inequitable because it's providing accelerated learning opportunities to only a select group of students. The other model that you talked about in terms of differentiation inside of the classroom, can you talk a little bit more about what that looks like in practice? Yeah, so I think it, it's kind, kind of a vague thing in a lot of ways, because I think it really depends on the individual teacher and what he or she is going to do. So there, there's 
you know, the, the students will, you'll typically they'll be clustered. So say you've got seven gifted students in the, in the, out of a hundred kids, you know, those seven might be in a class together. So they would be with gifted and non-gifted students or students who are not identified as gifted, I should say. Um, and then the idea is that you're, you're doing things in your teaching that are going to provide them for higher level thinking or, you know, interesting project-based stuff. And I think a lot of teachers, their response is, is actually probably the, a good one, which is, oh, I'm not going to, I don't know that I want to do something so special just for these seven kids, like pull these seven kids for special, like fun enrichment time. And then the other 17 kids have to do like the drudgery exercises. <laughs> like, so I think that most teachers um, who have that gifted cluster have the right mindset of, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to do interesting stuff like that, you know, in math, you call them, you might call them the high ceiling, low floor tasks, where you're going to do interesting, rich tasks, um, where everybody has the opportunity to do some, some rich mathematical thinking and some collaboration. Um, uh, you know, I don't, I, I do think probably it's probably true that there's, generally in a, in a school-based gifted class, there's probably not really a set of things that are like, this is what you do with gifted students. It probably is, there's probably wide variance and there's probably, there's probably an opportunity there, frankly, for us to get a little more specific about what we should do with when you've got a gifted cluster of students in your class. Right. And that, that definitely, <laughs> I see Amy nodding her head that, that aligns exactly with some of those recommendations around professional development um, because differentiation is a way of sort of pushing back against tracking, which you really were talking about there just a second ago, Morgan, where like once you get into the pipeline of advanced course taking in elementary school, that has implications as you go through middle school when you take algebra one. And then of course, whenever you get to high school, John, you're a high school principal. What does advanced coursework look like in a high school? And then what could we do at the high school level to promote equitable enrollment and support in these classes? Thanks, David. I, I love that question. And um, I think we'll start with the, the advanced coursework at the high school level, as you mentioned, you know, whether that's honors level, AP, IB, dual enrollment. It's really characterized by, by rigor, deeper learning, deep exploration of the topic, really an increase in independence level for students and, of course, expectations for students and, and really preparation for the next step, really effective way, whether that's college or going into the workforce. While we're working to, to change this at, at our school and others um, around the country, we know, though, that research will also tell us when you ask, what does it look like in this high school, that advanced level courses statistically are more, are more likely to be taught by highly qualified teachers, more likely to be taught by teachers with a greater experience level, more likely to engage in that deeper learning model, active learning, less likely to be characterized by that rote teaching to the standardized test that we see in non-advanced level courses. So it, it really it really is a different experience um, depending on which level of class that one is enrolled in. Um, working to change all of those things in, in our schools, but we know that nationally that's what the, the data would show. So that, that really creates this compelling need for studies like the one that, that I'm privileged to be part of here and um, that, that, that say what, what can be done to close that opportunity gap uh, we know that it starts with, with making sure that all students and families are informed with um, the benefits of taking advanced and advanced level courses. Um, that's education, and that's making sure that, that those educational materials and that information is available to all. And that includes the long-term benefits of being enrolled in such a course, like I mentioned, the preparation for college and beyond. 
It also involves the removal of obstacles to uh, access to those advanced level courses. Uh, these might be you know, barriers like tests that must be passed to, to get into that. Could be gatekeepers, individuals who um, you must, one must pass through in order to get into that class. And even, you know, kind of gatekeeping metrics that would keep a, a, an interested student, a student with potential out of an advanced level class. So, so information and education, removal of obstacles. But a lot of that really comes down to changing mindsets. Um, changing the human, the humans involved can be an obstacle. As human beings, we all carry with us an implicit bias. So really shifting mindsets and, and getting at, at what, 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 if, what biases might exist whether that be an administrator, school counselor, a teacher, um, that could that could be training, you know, professional learning for teachers and, and school staff. Uh, and then lastly, I would say that that support for students in preparation for those classes, which is a long-term really endeavor as we work students, you know, through the through the pipeline to an advanced level AP and IB class. Uh, also, once they're enrolled in the class, right? We see so often a student, you know, will student will stretch or push to get into an advanced level class, um, and then either for a variety of reasons might flounder and then, then ask to drop the class or not continue in, in, in the advanced level the next year. So really a, a network of support for students once they're there. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying the, the, the battle is won because you're in the advanced level class saying you must continue to work uh, to, to keep those classes really integrated. Some of the recommendations that we've explored at the school level is, is identifying students based on interest level, not just kind of metrics of grades, you know, a student that's really, really passionate about history or really, um, really passionate about that science and, and using that as a, a way to identify a student that might benefit from this course. Uh, leveraging relationships in promoting advanced level classes, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not only the, the school counselor or the previous teacher that might sell a student on the benefits of taking an honors course. It might be a coach. You know, it might be um, another teacher they've connected with. And so leveraging those relationships as we educate students and families and then just building that network of support um, and working with groups of students, you know, we talk about that belonging sense earlier of, of, of you know, being one of the few students of color in a course, building really networks of relationships that students can draw on. Uh, maybe a shorter way to, unfortunately, to answer that question of what do they look like. Currently, you know, if we look across the, the country, advanced level courses uh, look segregated. They're particularly white and Asian, particularly affluent. And that's why this is just such compelling work and there's such a need for it, you know, we talked about know, school segregation. We talk about it in our history. We, VCU has a study on now um, talking about how it's, it still exists from school to school, but we see it within schools, you know, despite our work to try and bridge that gap, uh, but still per pervasive within schools. It's also worth noting that uh, when we do successfully close this gap and integrate advanced level classes, everybody benefits, right? Mm -hmm. The honors level class is made, that discussion is made richer by multiple perspectives. And um, there's a danger in having, you know, students go through school with only perspectives of those that racially look like them, that socioeconomically look like them. So by integrating those classes, uh, it's something that benefits all students. Um, those students who are enrolled in the honors level class, maybe for the first time, but also those students who are already there. John, you mentioned like everyone benefits when, you know, like we remove or close that gap. Um, that just kind of resonated with me because here in Fairfax County, we have the school, um, STEM school, Thomas Jefferson, right? And so this school has historically just really almost cater to, you know, what we see in the research, you know, uh, white and Asian kids who 
come from wealthy families. And so, you know, our school district did some, some work <laughs> and decided to remove the uh, admission test. So now you're giving everyone a, a fair share. You're giving everyone an equal opportunity. And, you know, I would think that that would be a good thing, but there's just been so much opposition against removing that test because now parents are concerned about their kids. You know, what about my kid? What, what is my kid going to lose? And they're not going to lose anything. We're just making this process fair to everyone because if I'm from a poor family and I can't afford a tutor, then I'm at a disadvantage. I'm not going to be able to study for this test to get in. And maybe I can't even pay for the admission test. So, you know, I think when we put things in place that's going to benefit people, then it, it's just, it's always surprising to me that we make it a, a political game again around our students. So I just wanted to share that. Yeah, just to um, to jump in a little bit to um, piggyback off of what um, George was just saying and to echo a couple of comments that were made earlier by by John and some of the other colleagues on the call, putting my uh, very stylish educational psychology hat on for a second, I want to really echo and amplify um, the comments that were made about um, mindsets at every level and how much of a difference, how well documented it is in the literature that how educators, how students, how other stakeholders within school settings, the nature of the beliefs that they have about the nature of giftedness, the nature of advanced coursework is critically important. Mm -hmm. And related to that point, to echo something that John mentioned a little bit earlier when he started talking about the, the different experiences that exist within advanced coursework contexts versus non-advanced coursework contexts. There is a really large literature that exists that um, um, where I'm working on a couple of projects with um, a couple of doctoral students at BCU, Corey Nicolai and Destiny Braxton. There's a lot of literature that shows that across all levels of schooling, uh, students of color, particularly Black students and Latinx students, receive motivationally inferior feedback um, in the classroom compared to um, their white counterparts, for example. And I think that, again, just sort of fits really nicely with what, um, what John was mentioning. So I wanted to, to, to echo his sentiments and then um, uh, mention that uh, literature on differential feedback as well. The, the research that we've been looking into related to AP is so consistent with everything that um, John and George were just talking about and what you're, what you're talking about as well, Allison, especially that segregation piece. I mean, gifted programs and AP programs historically were established for already high achieving students and typically higher SES students. And I think that there's still some lingering effects of that. When you look at a program like AP, the whole idea is that it's supposed to prepare people for college, which is not just higher SES students and not just students who are already high achieving. And the College Board website, some of the purposes related to taking AP classes is they want to build your confidence in taking college level classes. And that should be something that's available to more students. And John and George, to both of your points, the research is pretty clear that the more we integrate within the classroom, the more benefits students tend to receive academically, socially, and emotionally. AP access specifically at the high school level is pretty disparate based on like rural and urban districts are less likely to have AP classes 
um, or the same number of AP classes. Suburban districts typically have more classes available to their students, but real access to it, like the students who actually take those classes are still highly segregated in suburban environments. So it's not just enough to have a, a, an integrated school district. We need to make sure that we have integration within the classrooms as well. And there's clearly so much to study with this and so, so much to unpack. And this is a very big study because there's so much that we need to dig into with this. The first component of this study is a secondary data analysis where we are collecting data from the Virginia Longitudinal Data System, which is this really incredible resource uh, sponsored by the state that pulls together data from a lot of different state agencies, including the Virginia Department of Education, the State Council for Higher Education for Virginia. There's, there's data related to uh, social services. Um, other publicly available data is aggregated in this system where we're going to be able to request uh, around 13 years of data from students in our region to understand what their course taking patterns look like over the last sort of 10 to 13 years. Um, and the idea there is we want to not only see what the experience was like for one kindergarten cohort to go through graduation. So like what was their course taking pattern through graduation, but also how have these things changed over time? How have schools become either more equitable or more inequitable and in how they're providing advanced coursework to their students? So if off of that data, we're gonna be able to answer questions like who actually gets identified for gifted programs? Um, how does that vary by race, SES, gender, but also factors like English learner status. So if a student is identified as an English learner, what's the likelihood of them also being identified as gifted? If a student is identified as having disabilities and needing accommodation, what's the likelihood of them being identified as gifted as well, um, which is considered a twice exceptional student in the literature? How likely are students to take um, Algebra one by the time they get out of middle school? How does that vary by demographics? What is the difference whenever you um, are identified as gifted in elementary school? Like what are the concrete evidence of this academic pipeline that we're talking about? And then the same thing in high school, like what you're doing earlier in school, how does that translate into whether or not you're taking AP classes, IB classes, dual enrollment in high school? And we'll be able to take a look at how this varies by the availability of advanced course offerings. So we've also been doing an analysis of high school course offerings in our region to see what percentage of them are considered advanced or weighted. What's the availability of AP, IB, dual enrollment and honors courses in our region? We'll be able to do some analysis based off of that to see if you're in a district that has a really high percentage of advanced courses available to you in high school, what does that mean for you when you're in elementary, middle, and high school? What does that mean for your post-secondary outcomes? So the idea is we want to get a, a really robust idea about the landscape of advanced course taking in our region, and not just advanced course taking, but all course taking in our region to see how this compares across demographic groups. Because it's not enough to think about this from a national or a state level. We already have data related to that. This is a chance for us to get really granular and understand what's happening in our seven school divisions. How does this vary based off of um, across urban, rural, and suburban contexts? And I'll say that this is pretty consistent with what the Virginia Longitudinal Data System, what the state wants to see happen with this data. I'm sitting on a committee with several of the researchers across the state to inform a research profile for the Virginia Longitudinal Data System that's supposed to be answering questions related to equity, um, because it could be a really powerful tool for answering those kinds of questions. And I'm really excited that our study is going to be able to do that for our first component. Um, Morgan, what are you hoping from your perspective for us to learn from this component of the study? So I guess, I guess one of the biggest things I would like to see would be, you know, there, so 
we, there is a pipeline of talent or gifted students or you know whatever you want to say. And as you get, I feel like as you get to middle and high school, there are more avenues with which you could do advanced coursework. You know, there, there's, I mean, at the elementary level, you know, there's it's it's advanced mathematics is really the 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 main thing that you you take. And so, you know, but if you think about students who maybe do have some interest in social studies or science or you know some other kind of thing where they're going to go into that secondary route making sure that they're set up in elementary so that they can take advantage of those um and, and so you know thinking about like okay what, what does it take to get a fifth grader ready for ap chemistry like mm. that's you know like th that's the kind of thing that i think is is interesting and so i think that the traditional answer would be, well, they just need to make sure they have good grades in elementary. But like, okay, maybe you know, maybe we can be trying to really think about that. Like, what what do we need to do mathematics-wise to to get kids so that they are ready for that course level and really making sure that there is an alignment and there's the different levels are, are, are talking to each other in some way. So, I'd be interested what your what what the data has to say about those, you know, just about that whole K twelve trajectory. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm so excited to dig into this data. That's that's really the beautiful thing about longitudinal data analysis. It's like you get to you get to understand what somebody's experience is like across time. Um, and the the two faculty members who are leading this component of the study, Chin Chi Chin and uh, Capriya Johnson, are both amazing. Um, we have some great doctoral students working on this component of the project, and we have lots and lots to share. So Morgan will be sure to keep you posted. This will inform the work of a lot of people, including the other components of our study. Um, the other element related to our first phase, which is this explorational phase, is a policy analysis. Tamika, you're a principal investigator on this component of the, the project. Can you say a little bit more about what we're planning for this? Yeah, you know, just to keep in line of what we've been talking about, if you think about the importance of policy to set expectations, to set um, practices, to set up the ways in which um, people think about standards and accountability, without an understanding of the analysis of policies at the federal, state, and local level, we would be doing a complete disservice to only focus on the student outcomes. And so the policy analysis is really focused on what are the policy and structures that have been in place at the federal, state, local levels? How do they relate to equitable outcomes within the coursework? So that, that means looking at how are policies delineated at the school level? What are old po policies that are still standing? What are some that have been updated that are new, that are evolving? Um, what is the language in the policy? Is it understandable? How are those policies being communicated to families and the community, the teachers? And really trying to think about policy as being the standard barrier gives us an opportunity to give more, um, I guess it's almost to give almost a narration to the experiences that we're pulling from the secondary data analysis. Because longitudinal data is, is really awesome, but at what point and by which decision did those student experiences shift? And that's what the policy is. Was it a federal decision? Was it a local decision? And were the policies in any way um, impacting certain populations. So think about the use of Title I funds. How are those funds being used specifically thinking about social identities or racial identities, low-income students, Black, Indigenous, and people of color? How do we think about get the service, which within the different school systems as that was alluded to earlier? Really looking at that granular, I love that term, the granular look, almost being in the school and seeing how people are interpreting policy, 
communicating policy and staying within those guidelines. Um, so I'm excited about the policy piece because I think a lot of times people do policy and or experience. But in a comprehensive study like this, we'll have a full understanding of what's happening in our Merck region in a very detailed and intimate way to where it would make it really difficult for inequity to continue because we'll be able to identify where inequity has happened in various components of the student and teacher experience. Right. I mean, a policy is essentially an intervention. So like, like you're saying, once it gets implemented, we can do some measurement about like after this policy shifted, what did, what did the outcomes look like after that? And policies are changing all the time. That's something that's a challenge that we're navigating with this component of our study, right? Like the gifted guidance is already under consideration for some changes that's going to make it more equitable as well. So those are the kinds of things we're trying to reflect. And part of our theoretical framework for this study is critical race theory. Tamika, can you talk about how that helps us understand the policies we're looking at? Yeah. So David, you alluded to this earlier that when gifted education first started, it was mostly elite, right? So the initial origins of gifted education and also the ways in which advanced placement courses were created were for those who were elite and who had access. So inherently access to gifted education or access to advanced coursework is layered with racism and historical and institutional inequities. And so a critical race theory framework allows us to kind of take the lid off of all those things that are covered by words and phrases and shifts and all of these things that we usually look at as being almost a cover up. And it allows us to really look at how the practices and structures within the schools and the larger educational systems as a whole are creating, perpetuating and sustaining various inequities. So because of some of the research that Amy alluded to and others, we know that black students, for instance, are tracked and they're tracked towards uh, more lower course offerings over time. We know that there's gatekeeping that exists for low income students, for students who might be um, ESL, I mean, ELL and other you know, identities that are deemed historically marginalized. And as a result, they are not having equitable access. And so the entire point of the study is to identify what are the traits? What are the characteristics? What are the policies and practices that breed um, and that give opportunity for equitable access? And so critical race theory is basically saying we can't keep doing this anymore. We have to have a lens of being race and color conscious and knowing that racism is an everyday experience. And so without having that same lens and looking at policy, knowing that if it has a historical origin to race, if that policy is still not all the way dismantled, it's still being in some way um, continued on in our schools, we're probably perpetuating racism. And so we have to shift those systemic structures. And so it's really a benefit to, to counteract any, um, any uh, lack of access um, to getting to teachers who might be able to support you or getting communication to parents. And so I, I enjoy a critical race theory lens on the study because there are very few studies that are brave enough to be committed to centering race when looking at policy, because if we don't realize that those who wrote the policies probably don't look like the people who are not benefiting from them, mm -hmm. then we are, we are not really being equitable or even anti-racist. This is part of the reason why it's important to not frame these kinds of conversations in terms of achievement gaps, because it's not just that um, Black and Latinx and lower income students are uh, disproportionately not benefiting from advanced coursework programs 
It's also that white, Asian, and higher SES students are disproportionately benefiting from these programs. Like we have to think of it in that in that sort of framework as well, because that is also a problem. If we think of this in terms of gaps, then we could be more deficit oriented. If we think about this in terms of like the critical race theory, the structures that we're trying to under, understand and unpack here, that's what the opportunity is. Definitely, and gaps being anti-deficit is so important because we've allowed the achievement gap framework to be embedded within our educational system to the point where we expect certain behaviors. So we're creating stereotypes, we're creating gatekeeping, Mm -hmm. and we're already perpetuating negative perceptions about certain students solely by the way in which they're showing up in our classrooms. And so when we just kind of debunk the whole achievement gap and just look at equity and access, it allows us the opportunities to not just be you know, focus on stereotypes or not thinking about race, but it really does allow us to see the students as individuals and to value all of their knowledge and to support them in ways in which they probably haven't been allowed to previously. Absolutely. And John, what are you hoping that we learn from this component of the study? I, I just, I'm, I'm hung up on, on just such a, a great line uh, from Tamika about this idea of the interaction between policy and then lived experience and the fact that this study is looking at both, you know, as, as someone living, practically living, living in a high school every day, I'm um, being in a high school, being on the ground every day. So often we'll look at, at studies that focus just on policy and say, well, you know, that they're missing, they're missing a component. Um, or vice versa, and then you know centering race as a part of this, and having and to make as well as the, the the bravery to center race here, I think really gives us um, what is what's accurate, a clear picture of of, of all the, the many layers of, of this issue. Um, you know, I talked a little bit ago about um, you know, changing mindsets and going student by student, and and all those are are really important, and we we need to get granule in this stuff, but policies you know really have this potential to move the needle in a significant way really have a, a significant impact. And so it's such an important component of it. And so I'm interested in learning from our other districts in the area, uh, getting a really clear perception of what they're doing. So often on the ground, we, we get in our silos, um, working in one district or one school for a long period of time, you think that's kind of just the way it is. Or, um, and, and being able to pick some of the things that are working from um, each district or each level and bring them together in a, into a comprehensive way from a, a pragmatist standpoint, from a practitioner, it's exciting to be able to, to use that, that, that collective knowledge to really help benefit some students. And I do feel like, to your point about changing policies, David, I feel like we're at a moment, at least from where I sit, uh, at a moment where uh, uh, some might say finally, but, but districts and um, even in the state, state entities are looking for, for ways to, to shift policy to help um, move this cause forward. And so it, I feel like this, this study comes about at the right time and the right moment where there's a, a, a wide and, and a growing audience for uh, making the changes that are necessary. Yeah. And I mean, this is why we have a study team because then we get to hear from you know the principal of a, of a high school in Henrico to understand how the policies are affecting your work. The idea of connecting people to policies, like Tamika was saying, is so important. And that's why we're looking at the policy analysis as a critical component in connection with that secondary data analysis, because we're going to be able to see how have people actually experienced these policies, how did things change for them before and after. Um, so that's our first element of this study where we're looking at 
exploration of policies and existing data for students. But we also want to collect some new data. Allison, you're reading, leading up a, a pretty dynamic survey that we're planning on. What is our plan for our student survey? And why is it important for us to include student voice in our research? And how are we planning on going about doing that? So um, I'm really excited and feel really fortunate to, to have an opportunity to, um, to work with so many people on the student survey. The overarching objective of the student survey actually complements uh, and relates back to what Tamika just mentioned really nicely, which is connecting policy then to experiences. So the focus of the survey is centering um, not only students' experiences, their motivational beliefs, their perceptions surrounding advanced coursework, but also really centering the student's voice. And I would argue that that's a really essential component of our broader study because nothing can replace um, hearing from the students themselves about their experiences, their motivational and other academic beliefs and their perceptions. And I would argue that given the focus of um, this study, it's especially important because students' voices from low income and or historically marginalized populations have not been represented nearly enough uh, in this research in the past. And what's the framework that we're using for our survey? Great question. So primarily the study is going to be guided um, by a pretty widely, a very widely used um, mm -hmm. A theoretical framework in the achievement motivation literature, um, which is expectancy value uh, theory. And what's really core to that theory is, um, again, centering students' motivational experiences and operationalizing motivation according to sort of two overarching components, or really kind of three where one major component or set of psychological processes that the model focuses on are students' beliefs about their competence and how likely they think um, it is that they will be successful within a given context. Um, another component of that theoretical model uh, actually relates really nicely back to something that John mentioned earlier about student interest. So in other words, how much do students value in several different ways? What value do they attach to particular academic domains? And then third, what costs do they see are associated with engaging um, in a given academic task or domain? So that's what's really core to the theory. And then what the theoretical model predicts and what a lot of empirical evidence suggests is that those, um, uh, those motivational beliefs are really predictive, not only of performance, but also of behavioral uh, outcomes, namely the choice to continue engaging um, within a given academic domain or the choice, for example, to pursue advanced coursework versus not. So that's a theoretical framework. Um, but what I, one of the things that I like most about expectancy value theory is that the theoretical model, especially the most sort of recent iterations of it, really emphasize that these motivational beliefs that students experience do not occur within a vacuum and that the broader context kind of getting at both what Tamika and John were talking about, um, the broader context and socializers, including, for example, educators within that context are really, really powerful agents in shaping those motivational beliefs and ultimately achievement behaviors. 
And the final thing that I'll say um, about our theoretical approach to, uh, to this survey is um, sort of in the spirit of, or aligned with what I mentioned earlier about educational psychology. Um, we, Although um, we do intend to partially ground the study within expectancy value theory, we really want our approach to be not only interdisciplinary, but integrating across theoretical perspectives. And so um, we think that that will make the survey administration and what we can learn from that survey administration much richer for a variety of different reasons and just sort of the conclusions that we'll draw from it. Yeah. And so your team is hard at work designing this survey right now and collecting items that could work that are really well theoretically grounded. Um, But we don't just want them to be theoretically grounded. We're also trying to get some student voice in the process of actually designing the survey since we're going to be asking students about this. Can you talk about our plan for a student advisory council? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, David, I'm glad you asked about that because um, I think that um, that student advisory council step is a really essential one for exactly the reason that you just mentioned, that we want the items to be really sort of grounded within prior theoretical and prior empirical work, but we want to make sure again, to really center the students' voices in that process. And that's what our overarching objective is with first forming uh, the student advisory council groups. And so what that process will involve is um, receiving feedback from middle and high school students within um, our Merck region about the beliefs that they have and the experiences that they've had in terms of their experiences in advanced coursework or not in advanced coursework and what has contributed to their decisions or or perhaps lack of decisions in pursuing that type of coursework. And something as well that I really want to emphasize about that process, which was uh, really sort of um, brought to our attention and promoted by one of the doctoral students, Corey Nikolai, on the the project, is ensuring within that student advisory council um, uh, context that we have representation Uh, certainly from students who have pursued advanced coursework, but also from students who have not pursued advanced coursework to make sure that that, um, again, all voices uh, get represented. Uh, And I think that's important for a variety of reasons. And one of them certainly including to make sure that the the survey, getting back to what you said earlier, David, the survey and the items, the questions within that survey are as relevant uh, and meaningful as possible to the students who will be taking it. Right. And that's going to include uh, approximately uh, four students from each of our school divisions. So we're thinking two eighth grade students and then two ninth through 12th grade students for each of our divisions. So around 28 students potentially that are going to be on this advisory council. We're going to start meeting next semester. Uh, I cannot wait to talk to these students. Um, I think it's going to help make the research much more rigorous in a way that I think Merck is pretty uniquely situated to, to accomplish. David, I've got, I've got some great recommendations of former students for you if you, if you need, uh, need some folks. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, this is part of the reason we have a study team is to, to collaborate and to get some recommendations for participating students. George, you're on this survey team, but you're also an assistant principal. What are you hoping to learn from this component of the study? Thank you, David. And I think um, going back to the students' uh, stories, their experiences, I think um, many times, and I'm glad that educators and education is now shifting now, now that we're taking the student voice into consideration as we uh, implement programs, as we implement policies, but I'm looking to capture or learn the entire story. I wanna know 
you know, you know, did they have both parents in the household? You know, did any one of their parents graduate from high school? Are they immigrants to the country? Um, you know, did they have tutors? Were they doing any extracurricular activities? Um, what did their summers look like? You know, what clubs and organizations kind of helped to um, support some of these um, advanced coursework that they were taking? And, and then again, what was their experience when they were in the class? Uh, what is their perception of the teachers? Did their teachers look like them? You know, uh, was there any microaggression towards them? I want to know the entire story. And I know we won't capture everything, but I just do believe that the voice and the experience is, is definitely going to make this uh, research more, um, more enlightening. Absolutely. Um, if you're doing research related to students, then it's pretty important to include student voice. And that's, that's really what this is all about. Um, and just like Allison was saying, um, ed psych is, is a, a, a really great field for understanding student motivation. Historically, it hasn't done a great job of attending to context and everything you just said, George, is exactly why we're trying to structure it in this way to understand how somebody's experiences inform their decision making. Um, so we can't wait to, to find out what students have to say about this and to share what we learn. And then the, the final component of our study. So once we've done all of this and um, collected the survey data, we're going to be doing a multiple case study. Uh, Tamika, you and I are tag teaming leading this component of the study. We have a little bit more runway on this part because we want to get some planning done first. But can you talk about what we're planning on doing for the multiple case study? Yeah, you know, um, this part really complements what Allison was describing about getting the voice piece, really paying attention to these lived experiences beyond the data, beyond the numbers, beyond the policy. And so the, the multiple case study will involve a, a series of interviews and focus groups. And so the, the goal of it is to really think about what are the formal and informal practices that Merck division schools are doing to promote equity and advanced course taking. And so using some of the data from the secondary and survey analysis, we will identify certain schools that, um, and you know, I'm definitely in touch with their principals. We won't just pop up on them at the door. Um, <laughs> but we will, we will identify certain schools and conduct interviews with all of the key stakeholders within that school, the counselors, the teachers, the administrators at the school. We're really interested in their approach to enrolling, supporting, identifying students who are in advanced courses. And then we wanna use that student voice, which is really important by using student focus groups. We wanna understand what are the students' perceptions of advanced coursework why are they choosing to take them or not? What was going on when they decided to take it? How did they know? How did they learn about it? How were they notified? All of these promising practices. And by doing that, we'll be able to really understand the roles that these adults play who might be serving as gatekeepers in the process of students gaining access to advanced coursework. Thinking about the practices that are, again, informed by the policy, but are used at the local level. And what, and what do those um, practices look like on a daily basis? And being able to identify how those practices practices and those experiences of, of the students really promote student enrollment and persistence. And that's really important because sometimes we think that it's a policy and really it's a practice. And sometimes it's not a practice, it's an individual. So it's really getting at that lived experience so we can give more voice to the things that might not be captured in black and white or might not be captured in an email, but just might be something that might be a rumor in the hallway or a story that might happen or just something that happens in the community. And that's really important to think about those key stakeholders and their experiences. 
Right. And, and uh, because you and I are uh, tag teaming this, um, I've been thinking a lot about what recruitment's going to be like for this part of the study. So a good candidate school for this at the elementary school level might be a school that has shown greater, more equitable representation in their gifted programs over the 10-year period or 10 to 13-year period that we're looking at that secondary data. Um, it might be a high school where students are reporting over and over again how much support they're getting from their teachers to uh, enroll in AP courses and how they're really prioritizing outreach to underrepresented students for AP um, and doing some dynamic things. So we want to go into some schools that are doing some really dynamic things so we can learn from those practices, but also being mindful of there are some things that will still be growth areas for any school, right? So like one of the, the, the book that we're reading as a study team is Lewis and Diamonds, Despite the Best Intentions, which is a relatively high achieving school where these researchers went in, but there's still pretty um, stark racial and socioeconomic disparities in who is achieving in the, in the schools. So even in schools where things are going well, we're still going to be looking at what are some things that could potentially improve because you can learn from the, I, I mean, Tamika, you talk about glows and grows anytime I'm in a meeting with you. Like, what are the things that we can learn from that are positive? And what are some of the things that are like opportunities for growth? Um, so really excited about that component of the study. I also love how this fits in with the policy component of the study. So going all the way back to that, because the policy component, Tamika, we're going to be looking at federal, state, and division level policies. We're basically looking at everything but what's happening at the school level, right? So this will give us a chance to say, we know what the federal policy is. We know what the state level policy is. We know what divisions are saying to provide advanced coursework. Now we get to know how this actually looks in practice. And we have this student survey component. So it's this idea of leave no stone unturned, right? Like, yeah, you, what I like about that is this is almost translational. I think a lot of times we see like the division policy is an interpretation of other policies, but they're pretty broad. They provide guidelines, they provide standards. And so by looking at how they're interpreted each individual school, especially the difference between an elementary school in the same division, or they, you know, different practices can still meet the guidelines, still meet the policy, but it can be interpreted really, really differently. And one thing is you were describing how we would identify the schools in which we would go to. Typically in research, we always want to gravitate to what's the best, right? Who's the best? Who has the highest GPA, the highest number of students going on to college? And that's not the focus of the study. This focuses on the pathways, the access, the equity piece, the lived experiences of the populations of students who are caught between so many people, individuals, and policies. And I think that's how we are being anti-deficit in, in just the design of the study, because we are committed to seeing what are the promising practices? What are the ways in which students might be able to navigate these spaces better despite what their averages are? We're paying attention to the student and really centering their experience, which I think is a game changer for the future um, products that can come from the study and how this might become a framework for other places and other states to look at how to really create something focused on equity from the onset of a study. And then in the longitudinal data only adds further, you know, adds more color to this because it gives us an idea of to ask the right questions to see, 
are you still experiencing these things? That's why I always think about the qualitative study to be in a focus group of students. And they're like, I don't even know what that means. And it's, and we're like, but you're, you, you know, in the back of our minds, we might say, okay, you should know, but we're gonna, well, how did you find out? And those are the moments where meaning making happen. And we're able to hear certain names of people who are not gatekeepers, but they're the people who are the ones opening the doors, right? And we're, we're gonna hear about the history and my brother said this, or my parents said that. So we'll hear how people navigate some of the um, challenges that they face because of their social identity or their socioeconomic status. So that's where we really learn more about the lived experience and some of what um, the community cultural wealth model um, and thinking about how are they navigating the capital? How are they really aspiring to do these things despite everything facing them, despite the tracking, how are they being successful? Those are the pieces that I'm excited to uncover in, the, in this case study. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Morgan, what are you hoping that we learn from this component? Uh, I mean, a, a bunch of things. It, it sounds like you're going to. I mean, that is, uh, I'm uh, really excited about that. Um, I, I would be really interested in like what we, you know, what, what, so if we find these exemplary schools or if we find these, uh, you know, programs or people who are doing things that are improving students' lives by giving them, uh, by giving more students access to higher coursework, advanced coursework, like what are they doing? And then the reverse of that too, it sounds like you guys are also going to talk to, to kids who aren't in those, who aren't in advanced coursework. And like, that's kind of interesting too. Like, well, why aren't you like, you know, and, and I, I wouldn't be at all shocked if there are some kids who could point to a specific time where I was going to do this, but this happened. This, my sixth grade teacher said, you know, I mean, you know, and, and so, you know, there, there's, there could well be the pathways forward, but there could also be some cautionary tales of like, look, if, if you, if you care about kids, which teachers do, and you want kids to be successful and you want all kids to be successful, here are the things you can do and here are the things not to do. Um, I do think that there's a lot of teachers maybe have a belief that they can get a little nervous about putting kids into advanced coursework if they think they're not going to be successful. And, and that would be interested to see, it's interesting to see if that fear plays out or if that fear is not true. If, if kids, if there are kids who say, you know what, like I took this, I, I got put into an honors course and it was really hard, but then the second, the second year I was okay. Uh, you know, that, that's, that would be interesting to find out. And so that we could tell teachers that look, you know, 90% of kids who were put in advanced coursework did just great. And they, or they struggled and then they did great. Like that would be really, really nice. Then the final thing would be if there are schools that say, you know, say you have two schools that are demographically similar and one has a lot more ident gifted identified students, I want to know what they're doing. Like, mm -hmm. that's a fascinating thing. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just like any Merck study, we're going to have reports coming out from each of these components. And we'll also have companion podcast episodes where we get together and talk about all the fascinating things that we learned from our data collection analysis for, for, from each of these components. So there's obviously a lot going on. This is an ambitious study. We like ambitious studies because that's how you actually learn how to tackle some of the big issues that we're facing in public education. Overall, what do you hope that we're going to learn from this study? Amy, let's start with you. Well, and actually to feed off what Morgan was just saying, I'm so curious about the practices that they have in place at the schools where they're identifying more of the underserved population for gifted services or advanced coursework. But even more importantly, what are the student perceptions of those practices that are in place that are successful, that are yielding higher results? Like how do the students feel about it? So that's what I'm curious about. Allison, how about you? So actually, um, what I'm most sort of 
curious and excited about uh, relates really nicely to what Amy just mentioned. So for me, part one of my answer really goes back to the student voice question. Um, I'm really excited for us to better understand um, students' perceptions, as Amy just mentioned, and their voices within that process. And then the second part of my answer goes back to Tamika's point about um, a really promising and exciting aspect of this study that we're not just looking at policy, we're not just looking at experiences, we're looking at both of those things and kind of the intersection and interaction of them, which I think will generate both small scale and large scale or implications for small scale and large scale um, and actionable changes that can be made to support students um, who have been inequitably underrepresented in advanced coursework. So that's what excites me the most. John, how about you? So I, I think this is a really tough question because there's so much of this study that will be um, immediately useful and practical to my day job and to you know the meaningful work that schools do. And, and it's just such a, an important topic that has life, life outcomes for students um, in, in such a powerful way. So it's, it's pretty tough, it's a difficult question. Uh, but for me, it's, it's, it's obviously what can be done at the school level uh, and, and really what, what comes out as um, the, the most effective recommendations or most effective, you know, the, the most impactful um, practices that can be put into place. Uh, there's, there's been a number of people working on this, um, working on increasing access for a long time. And sometimes it feels like we're kind of trying everything and it's such a multifaceted issue that we are throwing a lot of things up against the wall and to bring some clarity to you know really hear you know whether it's students reporting it or we're seeing it you know from one school to another this had a giant you know significant impact and and then having the ability to bring that into practice um, here at a school that uh, that serves a, a wonderfully diverse population um, I think that I'm, I'm I'm thrilled to see that um, and and can't wait to George Thank you, David. Yeah, it's it's a lot to think about. This is a really great question and a lot of things come to my head. But I think, you know, being a school based administrator, like how can I use what I'm learning to make it more practical to my day job as well? And then how can I use what I'm learning or learning through this research to make change, to make change in my school district, to um, make sure that we're looking at the right things when it comes to practice, um, make sure that we're implementing the right things when it comes to professional development, um, make sure that we are just, you know, considering the student voice that we learn through this research as our students navigate these uh, advanced coursework. So just really trying to take everything in and condense it to uh, just make sure that it looks how it's supposed to look. Morgan. How can we at the elementary level and maybe the, the middle school level to promote equitable access for advanced coursework so that when our students get to George and John and the high schools, this is not as big of a problem for them. Uh, so we need to start on our end is, you know, the more we can do on our end, the easier their jobs will be in high school. And Tamika, how about you? I'm really interested in the stories of the students um, along the lines of who are those socialization agents or those encouragers within their individual school to push them to take it. And this could be the ones who are 
who were never thought about prior to high school. I really, that's that's the population I'm interested in. The ones who barely scapegoated in or were thought about not making it in. Those are the students I'm interested in hearing their stories because I really think it'll help us interpret how the policies are really being interpreted and in, in practice at the school level. So uh, back in January, this was just an idea. And since then, we've uh, developed a team of 50 people across seven school divisions and one university who are deeply invested in this topic. I'm so excited about the collective brain power on this team and to continue working with all of you. And what John said earlier has really stuck with me about how the time is right. I mean, we're talking about equity so much in education and it's so central in all of our discussions right now. I think that there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for moving the needle on this issue that's been a, a, a pretty persistent concern nationally, statewide, and um, regionally. And I think that we're only going to grow from here. And I'm really looking forward to doing that together. And we're going to need to leave that there for now. But if you want to learn more about this ongoing study, you can visit the Merck website at merck.soe.vcu.edu slash projects. That's merc.soe.vcu.edu slash projects. We will be sharing lots of information from this study, so be sure to sign up for our email listserv on our homepage to stay up to date with this research. You can download our literature review on equity and gifted programs in the reports tab, along with several other reports that will emerge from this study over the next few years. You can subscribe and listen to other episodes of Abstract wherever you get your podcasts, including SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Our thanks, as always, to the VCU School of Education for supporting the work that we do at Merck. And to all of our partner school divisions, Chesterfield, Goochland, Hanover, Henrico, Petersburg, Powhatan, and Richmond Public Schools. Thanks to Tamika Ferguson, George Huon, Amy Jefferson, Allison Koenka, John Marshall, and Morgan Saxby for being a part of our discussion today and for all that you bring to our research and study teams for this project. Finally, thanks to you for joining our conversation today. We hope that you and all who are important to you are well. This has been another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. Let's talk again soon. What are you guys laughing about? <laughs> the chat. We're glad that you didn't see the chat. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been able to read that straight. There's 19 <laughs> unread chat things. Oh, my God.